Hi, this is Mike here. I'm really so glad to be sharing with you. I have such a passion for seeing the church, the Bride of Christ, um, renewed and restored, and, and I'm excited to be sharing such a key theme of repentance today, something that's so important that can be misunderstood. And so hopefully at the end of these two sessions, this week and next week, we'll have a, a better grasp of it and be able to receive the full benefits of what this wonderful theme or teaching of repentance really means. So in this first week, I'm going to be talking about basically the theology of repentance and to, to recognize what repentance is, that it's not a strange medieval Catholic thing. It's not a secondary thing. It's actually such a vital thing. And in, in next week, we'll be looking at some more of the pastoral application and how to walk in repentance. And the topic of these two talks is walking in power and freedom through a lifestyle of repentance. So let's get looking at the basic meaning of repentance. Um, it's an English word, and in the world you'll think of repentance as a person feeling regret for something they've done or thought that they've realized is not acceptable. But that really doesn't come close to the rich biblical meaning of repentance. So most Christians will think about repentance as the idea of a U-turn or changing and returning, coming back to God. And we can see where that idea comes from, from the Old Testament. I'm going to read two Old Testament scriptures that really show how repentance was such a key theme in the Old Testament. Let's look at Joel. And that's really a hard-hitting book, which is really repentance is such a deep theme because the people are in a terrible state and the prophet isn't mincing his words. So if we look at Joel 2, 12 to 18, he says, Even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. Rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love, and he relents from sending calamity. Who knows? He may turn and relent and leave behind a blessing, grain offerings and drink offerings for the Lord your God. Blow the trumpet in Zion, declare a holy fast, call a sacred assembly, gather the people, consecrate the assembly, bring together the elders, Gather the children, those nursing at the breast. Let the bridegroom leave his room and the bride her chamber. Let the priests who minister before the Lord weep between the portico and the altar. Let them say, spare your people, Lord. Do not make your inheritance an object of scorn, a byword among the nations. Why should they say among the peoples, where is their God? Then the Lord is jealous for his land and took pity on his people. So you can see those key themes of repentance and how it's affecting everyone and calling them to a deep change of heart and behavior. Another Old Testament verse that we're more familiar with would be Chronicles. 2 Chronicles 7, verse 13 to 14. When I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain, or command locusts to devour the land, or send a plague among my people, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves, and pray and seek my face, and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin, and will heal their land. So you can see the basic theme of turning away from bad behavior, wicked behavior. And usually we are provoked to this when our bad behavior has caused such trouble in our lives, and we get a wake-up call, and we turn back to God. And that's where the idea of repentance as a U-turn, as turning back to God, comes from. But we're going to explore the New Testament meaning of the word and, and the richness that's in there. In the New Testament and in the Gospel, repentance is basic to the message. And it's something that's an ongoing thing. 
it's not a once-off thing. It's not an Old Testament thing or something that only happens at salvation, but it's an ongoing thing. And it's actually a joyful work of grace. And it's integral to maintaining our most precious possession, which is our relationship with God. So if you've, if you've misunderstood repentance or seen it in a negative light, I'm hoping at the end of these two talks, um, you'll really be excited about it. So repentance is a change of mind and of attitude and of behavior. Let's look at what the word means in Greek. So the word repentance comes from the Greek words metanoia. And looking first at the, at the prefix meta, it, it means basically with or beside or after something. So if you've heard of metaphysics, it's something that is beside or next to physics. So if you study physics, it's a study of science, physical science, of the things in nature that are visible, that you can see and touch. And metaphysics is something you'd study in philosophy and theology. And it's an attempt to study scientifically the transcendent world. And you wouldn't study that in natural science. You've also heard of like Facebook trying to talk about the metaverse. And it's, it's, a, it's a universe, it's a world that's alongside our present physical world. And Mark Zuckerberg really wants to draw you into his universe. He's actually saying, come into the real world, what he thinks is, and come in, into the metaverse. Well, that's actually what metanoia is. Because noia means your way of thinking. So God is saying, there's a new way of thinking, and I want to draw you into this new way of thinking. And when you're drawn from your old way of thinking into the new way of thinking, that's metanoia, that's kind of repentance. So if we look at the actual word, besides meta, the actual verb there is noia. And it means to exercise the mind, how you comprehend, what you think, what you understand. So metanoia is to think in a new way. And it's not just an intellectual thing, because when you think in a new way, it's actually a change of your attitudes. It's a change of your values. And consequently, it's a change of your behavior, of every part of your life. So when the Bible calls us to metanoia, to repent, it's actually telling us to change our whole life, which is out of alignment with God and is causing pain, suffering, and destruction, and be aligned with God's way of thinking and consequently with God's way of behaving. It's to find salvation. That's what it is. So again, repentance, metanoia, is not so much about individual sins, but it's about a complete transformation of your heart and your mind. It's kind of renouncing a, a worldview and a set of goals that are based on me, my self-confidence, my will. I'm the master of my ship. And it's saying, no, God is at the center. And when we switch and we turn from ourselves at the center, and we turn to God at the center, we've done metanoia, we've changed our thinking. And consequently, every single thing about us has changed. So if we actually go and look at the gospel text, we can see that metanoia, repentance, is at the heart. We open the message of the gospel with John the Baptist. He comes, and if we look at Matthew 3, 1 to 3, it says, In those days John the Baptist came, preaching in the wilderness of Judea, and saying, Repent, metanoia, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. This is he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, Prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. 
So you might have thought, uh, but I thought it's all about faith. That actually it's, it's faith is the way into the kingdom. And how does repentance fit with that? And it's really wrong to separate repentance and faith. They actually go together in the New Testament like two sides of a coin. And, you know, we have this tendency to separate things that God has put together. An example is sometimes like Jesus is Lord and Savior. It's clear. And sometimes we, we like to take Jesus as Savior, but we don't want to take him as Lord. And some people try to make Jesus your Lord without giving you the grace of him as your Savior. And even though the Bible sometimes talks about some verses focusing on Jesus as Lord and other verses focusing on him as Savior, they ultimately are verses that talk about both. And we, we meant to put them all together. And another example of where we separate things is faith and works. We think we save by faith and works have nothing to do with it. But again, if you read all of the scriptures, you can see that faith and works work together. When you have true faith, you have the fruit of works. And now repentance and faith are another set of ideas or realities in the Bible that go together. You cannot separate them. So when you read the scriptures, sometimes it only talks about repentance leading to salvation. Let's read some scriptures that are like that. Let's look at Acts chapter 2, verse 37 to 38. When the people heard this, and this is Peter, he's giving his first sermon, which inaugurated the church. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, Peter doesn't mention faith there, but that doesn't mean that he doesn't mean faith as well, and that's not part of the package. Again, in Acts 17.30, when Paul is talking to the Greeks in Athens, and he's talking about the past sins, and he said, in the past, God overlooked such ignorance, which was the worship of temple idols in Greek culture and that. And it says, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Again, he doesn't even mention faith. And when Paul is before King Agrippa in Acts 26, verse 19 to 20, he says, So then, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the vision from heaven, first to those in Damascus, then to those in Jerusalem and in all Judea, and then to the Gentiles. I preached that they should repent and turn to God and demonstrate their repentance by their deeds. Again, faith is not mentioned. It's simply assumed. But now there's another set of verses where it talks about faith without mentioning repentance. There's an instance in Acts 13, verse 38 to 39, where Paul is witnessing to his fellow Jews in the synagogue. And he says to them, Therefore, my friends, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Through him, everyone who believes is set free from every sin, a justification you were not able to obtain under the law of Moses. Now here Paul mentions faith and he doesn't mention repentance. A similar thing happens in Acts 16, verse 30 to 31, where Paul and Silas have been in prison and they miraculously um, are released and their jailer comes to faith. And the jailer says, he then brought them out and asked, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they replied, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Again, he mentions Faith without mentioning repentance. So if you only look at some scriptures and ignore other scriptures, you're going to come with false doctrine. You're going to say it's all about faith, or you're going to say it's all about repentance. 
But the Bible has both sets of scriptures and it expects us to put them together. And in fact, in some verses, we see them clearly being put together. And if we look at an example in Acts 5, verse 30 to 31, it talks about this. And it says, The God of our ancestors raised Jesus from the dead, whom you killed by hanging him on a cross. God exalted him to his own right hand as prince and savior that he might bring Israel to repentance and forgive their sins. And when Paul was speaking to the Ephesian elders in Acts 20, you know that I have not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you, but have taught you publicly and from house to house. I have declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus. And finally, Jesus in Mark 1, verse 14 to 15. It says, after John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said, the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. So it's quite clear that faith and repentance are integral. They go together like two sides of a coin. And repentance is a gift. It's not something you can work up. When we are dead in our sins, we are dead. We're not capable of believing. We're not capable of right behavior. We're not capable of repentance. And the Bible clearly says God comes to us with gifts while we are dead. And we just have to not reject those and receive those. So we see in Acts 11 how it talks so clearly that it's a gift of God. In verse 16 to 18. Where it says, Then I remembered what the Lord had said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So if God gave them the same gift he gave us who believed in the Lord Jesus, who was I to think that I could stand in God's way? When they heard this, they had no further objections and praised God, saying, So then, even to Gentiles, God has granted repentance that leads to life. And there's several scriptures that talk about God giving repentance. And it talks about pray that God will give people repentance. It's a gift from God. So the whole package deal of faith and grace and repentance and the Holy Spirit, they are all gifts from God that we need to receive and cooperate with. And it's a supernatural gift. It's not something we earn. It's simply a gift that removes obstacles to receiving all that God has for us. God is truly so generous, but he is also true and holy and Repentance is necessary to connect us with God and remove the obstacles. So that gives us an idea of the nature of what repentance basically means. It's metanoia. It's changing your mind and moving from a corrupt, worldly, godless way of thinking and believing and consequently of behaving and moving to God's way of thinking. Letting go of the one and taking hold of the other. And we have a, a way of thinking that is meta, that is after, that is beside, that is new. Now, repentance is something that is so important for salvation. I think most Christians understand that. But then they tend to think of it's, it's a once-off and then we don't have to worry about it again. Well, let's first look at repentance in terms of how it is, it, it's necessary for salvation. 
when Jesus was speaking to the crowd in Luke 13, verse 1 to 5, he was talking about how Pilate killed certain people. And then he also talked about a natural incident where a tower fell on people in Siloam. And he said, do you think these people were worse sinners than others? But then he says, no, but unless you repent, you too will all perish. So Jesus clearly says, if you don't repent, you will perish. There's another verse where he says, you will die in your sin. And that's not something God doesn't want to send anyone to hell. He doesn't want anyone to be separated from him. He wants to reconcile everybody. But the process of coming to God is repentance. You can't bypass it. So why is repentance such a big thing? Because of sin. And when we, when we have sin, which is an attitude of the heart and of the mind, and then working its way out into how we behave and how we speak, it affects every single one of our relationships. It affects our relationship to God, our relationship to ourselves, the way we interact with each other, and the way we interact with creation, whether it's the physical world and nature and the cultural world and music and media, all of these things are affected by sin. And they're affected in two ways. They're affected in terms of separation and in terms of corruption. When we have sin, there's a blockage between us and God. There's also a blockage between us and our true self. And there's a blockage in relationships and there's a blockage between us and enjoying nature. And it's not that there's no relationship, but there's a blocked relationship. But in addition to that, there's a corruption. So you have a relationship, but it's, it can be violent or suspicious. Or we can think of a marriage. Let's say one of the partners or both of the partners have a secret sin. It's going gonna, it's gonna to poison the marriage. It's going to stop intimacy. And when there is interaction, it's going to have a sour, poisonous, toxic aspect to it. They're going to judge each other. They're going to lose their temper more easily. And that is all sin. And you say, well, I want a really good, peaceful marriage. I want a joyous marriage. Then you're going to have to repent. You're going to have to change your mind. And this applies to every single one of our relationships. So there is no fullness of life. There's no freedom. There's no real power. There's no love. There's no peace. There are none of these things that every human heart needs and hungers for without repentance. Because we are born in sin, the Bible says, and there's a corruption in the whole universe. And we have to deal with this. And access to these gifts of freedom and love and, and power, all the things we, we hunger for, they're only found in God. Because the Bible says he's the source of all things. From him and through him and to him are all things. In James it says every good gift comes from him. And we can only find it in God. And only by participation in a relationship with God can we have this. And only as God brings us forgiveness and salvation can we have it. And that can only come through repentance and faith and receiving. So when we repent... We let go of our false ways of thinking and we come into a state of truth and humility and receptivity. A, a good example of a basic belief in our mind that would change with repentance is we come to a point and say, you know what, I've been acting as if I'm God and I've been making all my plans and decisions around me as if I'm God. And no wonder the world is in such a mess because when you have billions of people all acting like God, it's a recipe for conflict and disaster. And you come to this point and say, God, I'm not God. You're a God. I'm not God. I've been so selfish and deceived and I've blown it and I've made a mess of my life. 
I'm sorry. Now that's an example of repentance. You're changing your mind, your beliefs about something. And that for sure is going to impact your emotions and attitudes and your behavior. But it's basically you dealing with truth. It's kind of like junk formatting in a computer. You, you, you're reformatting that computer. That computer, you could say, when you get a computer fixed up, it's kind of repented. Um, it's, it's moved beyond its junk code and its corrupted hardware, um, software systems. And we, we come to God and saying, we don't just need repentance because of our current state, what we are. We need repentance because of what we've done. Because out of behaving in this world, in a selfish way, usually there's a trail of wreckage behind us. And we've got to deal with that. And again, we bring that to God for forgiveness. And that's part of what we repent about. And that is why humanism is doomed to failure, I believe. When we look at humanism, in its, both its secular and religious forms, it's basically humankind, humanity at the center. And humanism fails to take God seriously, and it fails to take sin seriously. And again, it's destined to failure because you can make all the greatest plans and political constitutions and protest movements and hashtag movements. And because it hasn't dealt with the corruption in the human heart, because it hasn't repented, it just actually leads, leads to more chaos. When people are pointing fingers at each other and saying, this is what you've done and you're responsible for all the mess in the world, and they're not aware of the plank in their own eye, it's, there's no real life that can come out of that. Now I'm going to talk a little bit about why repentance is not just a once-off thing that happens when you become a Christian. You know, some people think, Obviously, you have to repent to become born again, to become a Christian. But then isn't ongoing repentance negative? Isn't it a lack of faith? Um, doesn't the Bible say that I am a new creation? The old has gone. The new has come. So aren't you going backwards? Aren't you displaying a lack of faith? And that's an understandable mistake, but it's misunderstanding how the Bible works and how God works and how he declares as completed what is still a process. God's not limited by time. So he looks at us beyond time. He looks at us when all our days are done and he sees his completed work and he says, you are perfect, you are made new. In, in Psalm 139, it says, all the days written for me, all the days, all my days were written in your book before one of them came to be. So God's not limited by time. And he gives us this promise, and we hold on to that promise. He declares the end from the beginning. And when we come to him, he says, you are born again. You are a new creation. I've saved you. Then Romans, it says, those he called, he justified. Those he foreknew, he called. Those he called, he justified. Those he justified, he's glorified. It collapses it all into a completed act. And we can take comfort in that. And that motivates us. But we still have to go through all the acts and we have to experience all of this. There's a verse in Peter that says, he who has this hope purifies himself. So you become what you already are. So it's an ongoing thing. And any Christian who looks at their life, they know that they go up and down. That in some moments they have such a full realization of, of their salvation in Christ and they, they move beyond sin, they move beyond all the negative things. And the next day they find themselves back in old patterns. And so the process of repentance 
is an ongoing thing. And so we're going to look at that. So let's go back to that word, nous, where you get noia from. Noia is the, is the verb. And I'm going to quickly just go over that noun and verb again. The verb noia from, um, noia from metanoia is N-O-I-E-O, noia. And it's the exercise of the mind. It's how you comprehend what you consider and perceive, what you think, how you understand. And it comes from the noun, nous, N-O-U-S. And the nous refers, is the noun. It's your actual intellect, your mind, your thought, your feeling, your will, your understanding. So when we, when we see these certain verses that talk about renewing your mind, it's actually talking about nous. So it's another way of saying repent, keep repenting. And it clearly shows that it's an ongoing thing. You might be feeling a bit confused. Let me go over those two verses that clearly show this. And you can see repentance at the heart of it and how it's an ongoing thing. Everybody knows Romans 12, 1 to 2. Let me read it to you. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, His good, pleasing, and perfect will. This is clearly referring to a process. And the word there, mind, is nous, the noun, mind, from where you get the verb noia, from where you get the word repentance, metanoia. So when you say repent, when Romans 12 is saying, renew your mind, it's kind of saying, keep repenting. And this kind of makes sense, because when you become a Christian, you really repent of a whole lot of things. You say, God, you know, some people have this dramatic conversion experience. And they say, God, I repent of lust. I repent of, of my drugs. I repent of crime. You know, I was in prison. I repent of all these things. And, and I, I bring all my occultic stuff to you. And, and there's repentance. And they kind of go into this honeymoon period. But then, as they're going through their Christian years, they start to deal with other stuff. They start to say, God, I never realized I was proud. I never realized that actually I've neglected my, re my, my relatives, or I don't spend enough time with my children. I repent of that. Now, that kind of stuff didn't come out in the beginning. There was enough to do in the beginning. But as you grow, this other stuff comes. So the process of repentance keeps going on. And the process of blessing grows. And if you stop repenting, then you get stuck at a certain level. Let's look at Ephesians 4. Similar thing. 4 verse 22 to 24. Where it says, You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which has been corrupted by its deceitful desires to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. This is a wonderful verse because it talks about our old nature and our new nature. It says, put off your old self, which is corrupted, and put on your new self, which is in the very likeness of God. It has all the resources and power of God. And, and it's, it's the very nature of Christ. And it's clear that there's not a one-off thing. 
Now the old self is dead and you, you are dead to it. But if you forget that, it can still, you can still act as if it's alive. And this verse is telling us, be renewed in, in your mind, in the attitude of your mind, that you can remember that you're dead and put that off and keep putting on the new self. And as we grow through life, we learn to do that more and more, in more and more areas of our life. And we just, the, the process never stops. But it's quite interesting to look at verse 23. It says, be made new in the attitude of your minds. Again, mind is nous. And to be made new in the attitude, the word in attitude is spirit, the spirit of your mind, the very heart, the center of your mind. It's again talking about repentance. Keep repenting. Keep renewing your mind. Keep aligning your mind with God's truth. As you grow in understanding, as you grow in faith, as God calls you to new challenges and new relationships, you will suddenly find new areas that you need to repent on. Of It's an ongoing process. And if we look at Philippians 2, that's a final verse that clearly says that this is an ongoing process. Philippians 2, verse 12 to 13. It says, Therefore, my dear friends, as you've always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act to fulfill his good purpose. That is wonderful. Um, we're not orphans. We're not on our own. We're not earning salvation. We're not earning God's love at all. That's what grace is. God is in us. He's accepted us. He's at work in us. And now we have to cooperate. And that is an ongoing working at our salvation with fear and trembling, which is repentance, an ongoing lifestyle of repentance. Now, let's just look a little bit more about negative attitudes to repentance because people think of repentance being negative it's like in today's world it's very much about having a positive identity and that's partially true in the bible but the way it's done in the world it's not true and actually it starts to infect the church whereas instead of the process of repentance and coming into our identity in God through repentance and humility and what it kind of talks about in Philippians 2 where Jesus although he was God he humbled himself he emptied himself and took the lowest seat and God raised him up in the world it becomes more of a no you are special have a positive self-image and when you start talking about repentance and your sin people start to think don't you love yourself and don't you know God loves you and don't be negative. And that's a misunderstanding. It's a misunderstanding of, of kind of the paradox in Scripture. There's a verse in Romans 2.4. It says God's kindness leads to repentance. Because we know God's kindness and his holiness, we, we don't have to be scared of repentance. We can say there is no life without truth and God is holy and I want God's life. I don't need to put on a brave front. I don't need to pretend to be what I'm not. I can really repent and humble myself. And we start to experience true identity. And we, we struggle with this because of the positive thinking culture we live in. And it's understandable because people, when they don't believe in God, they don't believe in salvation 
they have to hide their sin. They're like Adam and Eve putting on a fig leaf to cover up their shame. And they have to come up with all these psychological, positive thinking methodologies. And they don't really work. Just like a fig leaf is not really going to clothe you very long. And in the Christ, in Christ, we can know that God is forgiving. And we can bring the worst of ourselves. And because of what Jesus has done on the cross, we, we, he will forgive us. He will accept us. So therefore in the church, we, we must be careful of too quickly moving towards that positive self-image of I'm the king's kid, I'm, I'm, I'm just so loved and accepted. We have to go through the cross. We have to humble ourselves. And we have to bring our sin. And that's what God says. He says, don't hide your sin. Though you're scum, let's reason together. Though your sins are red as scarlet, I will, I will, make, I will make you white as snow. So it, I had this picture. It's kind of like God's inviting us to this rich meal of repentance and restoration and true sonship. And we just want to go, we want to bypass it. And it's like people who go to McDonald's <laughs> and we, we want to go to the drive through window. And then not only do we go through that fast drive through window, we grab it and we eat it as we drive. And that's kind of the rush of our world. And so we struggle to, to truly examine our hearts and take the time to repent with, our, with God and take the time to go through the pain of facing our sin. But it's like not wanting to go to the doctor and just putting a, a Band-Aid on top of it. It's not going to help. And God calls us to something deeper. He calls us to fellowship. And this is what God is doing in, to the church in Laodicea. Now, you can't just say, oh, repentance is Old Testament. In the New Testament, it's all positive thinking. Because if you read what Jesus is saying, this is, these are the words of Jesus in, in, in Revelation 3. And he's speaking to the church. And let's hear his words. Let's hear how hard the words are, but also how kind they are. Let's see how heavy the challenge is, but simultaneously how great the invitation is. This is from verse 14 to 22. To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, These are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you are neither hot nor cold. I wish you were one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. You say I'm rich, I've acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire, so that you can become rich, and white clothes to wear, so that you can cover your shameful nakedness, and salve to put on your eyes, so that you can see. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And there is an invitation to 
enter to to share a meal with Jesus. And in, in the Middle Eastern culture, to share a meal was to share life. It's very different from driving past the McDonald's and grabbing a cheap burger and eating it on the go. And you still end up hungry. I'm going to look at another verse again. Just to show you that the grace and love and um, identity as a child of God in the New Testament is not a chapter that is completely different from the Old Testament. You know, that's one of the, the false understandings that often occurs in the church, that the God of the Old Testament is a God of wrath and law, and the God of the New Testament is a God of, of love and grace. It's really a misunderstanding. The Old Testament is so full of grace, and the New Testament is so full of challenge and God's wrath as well. And it's indisputable that God is love, but God cannot wink at sin. He cannot overlook sin. He can't. He wouldn't be God. He would be evil if he, if he embraced sin. And because of his goodness, because of his perfection, um, he has to destroy sin. And the reason he's waiting so long and he's taking so long in this process of history and salvation is because he doesn't want anyone to perish. The Bible says clearly he's not willing that any should perish. In Peter, it says, God is not slow as some understand slowness. And, you know, in, in, in the letter of Peter, people are, are mocking the way they mock us today and saying, well, where's this God? Where is his second coming that you promised? And like, I don't think he exists at all. And, and Peter explains, God is not slow the way some people understand slowness. And maybe we could think about why would someone be slow? Why would God be slow? Either because he's weak and unable or because he's unloving. But, but the Bible clearly says that God is perfect in love and perfect in power. So why is God taking so long? And in Peter, in the letters of Peter, it says, He is not slow, some understand. He is patient, not wanting any to perish, but everyone to come to salvation. And so when we look at the gospel, when we look at the New Testament, when we look at the New Covenant, we cannot bleach out the parts that have to do with challenge and say, I'm just going to go to the parts that are about love and identity. It's like going to the doctor and asking for a magic wand. And he's saying, wow, I can give you life, but you're going to have to go through an operation. You're going to go have to face what's in you. And I'm going to read one more verse before, we, before I wrap this up. And it's in James 4, 1 to 12. And again, this is written to the church. It's in the New Covenant. And if you read this carefully, you can see that there's a very hard word that's coming to us, that's coming to the church, but it's based in love. And the goal of this is to restore people, is to cause repentance so that they can enter into the fullness of salvation, that they can enter into the fullness of what it means to be a son or daughter of God and have a truly blessed life. So this is James 4, verse 1 to 12. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire, but you do not have. So you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. 
When you ask, you don't receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he caused to dwell in us? But he gives us more grace. That is why scripture says, God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. Brothers and sisters, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against a brother or sister judges them and speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you're not keeping it, but sitting in judgment on it. There's only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy. But you, who are you to judge your neighbor? Now, this verse is, is a really tough verse, and, and you might feel like you've just been, you know, 15 rounds in a, in a boxing match with God. But again, it's like that Revelations verse, those I love, I rebuke. And we can see the passion of God in where it says, do you not know um, that he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us? That God is, is passionate for us. And, and when he challenges us and rebukes us and, and trains us, and like I think of an old-fashioned mother who, who takes the son and puts him in the hot bath and scrubs between, behind the ears and the son is squealing, and, and it's because it's of love. And then it says he gives us grace. He gives us grace. And it says come near to God, he'll come near to you. It's about repentance that we can be restored and be in that fullness with God. So there's a wonderful paradox in all of Scripture and in this whole thing of repentance. And it's, it's kind of, we see these paradoxes where Jesus said, if you lose your life, you'll find your life. If you humble yourself, you'll be elevated. And if you commit to repentance and the pain and challenge that goes with repentance and facing your sin, you'll be free from sin and you will have fullness of life and joy. And I, I think that one of the signs of Christian growth, it's quite interesting. If you talk to Christians or if you, you look at Christians who've been Christians for several years or decades even, and they're genuine Christians, you'll see two things. They've genuinely become better people. There's just no doubt. Um, there's been a transformation. And they've genuinely become more humble. They're genuinely much more aware of, of being a sinner saved by grace. They don't identify as sinners, they identify as forgiven children of God, but they are aware. And that's the wonderful process of, of maturity in the Christian faith. You actually become better and a whole lot more humble about it. Whereas when you're a new Christian, <laughs> you have repented, but you still have a long way to go. And you're usually still full of some of the old pride and that. And God gives us more grace. So... Next week, we're going to be looking at, at really the benefits of repentance some more and, and some of the misunderstandings and, and, and some ideas around that so that we can, we can really walk in this way that's not legalistic, but it is life-giving, that is biblical. And I want to finish with 
with, an, with a little picture of why it's so important to, to deal with repentance. I was reading something from Derek Prince, and he said, you know, when we don't repent, we don't deal with a fifth column. And that image of the fifth column, it actually comes from the Spanish Civil War. And it's a translation of, of the Spanish Quinta Columna, which is fifth column. And that, this, you've probably heard of fifth column. I'm, I had to go and look what it really means because I understood I've heard fifth column. But I just researched what it really meant. And there was a rebel general, Emilio Mola, in the Spanish Civil War. And he predicted that Madrid would fall as four columns of rebel troops were approaching the city, were joined by another hidden column of sympathizers within it. And so what this is saying is that you can be a Christian and sincere, and when you don't deal with certain issues in your heart because you thought repentance was just something that happened once um, at salvation, and you said, Jesus has died for my sins, past, present, future. And you've mainly focused on just a positive confession of saying, I'm, I'm my identity in Christ, and you, you've overlooked that. The problem with that is that you've not dealt with the fifth column, which is unrepented sin and attitudes, and that is what keeps bringing us down. And repentance is about dealing with that fifth column. And... I'm going to leave you with just two verses that speak about that. This is the first verse that I just want to leave you with. And it's from 1 Thessalonians 5.23. It says, May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And the other verse is from psalm 139 where at the end of this wonderful psalm david cries out to god and he says search me god and know my heart test me and know my anxious thoughts see if there's any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting and as christians we are on the way everlasting we are going as psalm 84 says from strength to strength glory to glory increasing in the knowledge of god and in our fruitfulness and to pro proceed on that way, to progress on that way, we have to have a lifestyle of repentance where we invite God in and ask him to search our hearts, to test our thoughts, and to recognize and remove any offensive ways in us.